Well, I'm uh, pleased to introduce the, the final speaker of this first session. Uh, it's uh, Arthur Rose, who is Dr. Arthur Rose, a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Durham, working on the Life of Breath project with Harvey Carell and Jane McNaughton. Uh, and Arthur has uh, published a monograph uh, in 2017 uh, entitled Literary Cynics. Uh, and I've uh, forgotten to, what the title of your paper is, actually. <laughs> no, don't worry. Um, it, it, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll say it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So, so I had two um, apologies. Um, the first was going to be that I'm, in a, I'm a literary scholar and I don't know anything about phenomenology, and uh, James blew that apology out of the water. Um, the other was that I'm suffering from baby brain, but then my partner gave a great presentation, and uh, so I don't have that to go with. Um, basically, my apology now is that I was employed to look at breath in literature, and I've come to the end, or kind of the last three months of my postdoc, and I've done all the stuff that I was going to do, and my PI, Jane McNaughton, said, well, we've got a kind of problem, um, and we think that maybe phenomenology might solve that problem, so go and teach yourself phenomenology in the next three months and write a paper on this. Um, and this is the start of that work. Um, so I'm going to present a problem to you that I'm going to help. hope that I can... Uh, exercise your kind of wee mind to try and solve for me rather than actually give you anything that makes any kind of sense. And the problem that I'm going to give you is um, something called symptom discordance, which is, uh, if, you don't, if you don't know what that is, I'll hopefully talk about it um, or you can ask me a question about it. So basically what, what the Life of Breath project is, is it's a, is it's a big um, interdisciplinary Welcome Trust project investigating breath and breathlessness from um, cultural and medical perspectives. And what the... <laughs> The, the kind of task that Jane set me is, well, we've got this phenomenologist on the team, one of our PIs, Javi Carell, who does really amazing work on the phenomenology of illness and the phenomenology of breathlessness. We've got neuroscientists, but the neuroscientists are all interested in sensation, which, of course, if you know phenomenology of perception is like, um, you know, persona non grata to uh, phenomenologists. Um, and, uh, and they don't want to talk about experience. Um, but we kind of need to find an account that will bring sensation into an account of experience or bring experience into an account of a sensation. Try and see if we can kind of create some sort of boundary object that can act at least act as a kind of a roadmap for, for getting people to talk to each other about this. So the, the topic that I'm going to present on is reorienting breathlessness, a case 
against symptom discordance, though, as as I've already sort of suggested, there won't be any cases for or against anything because I'm a literary scholar and I work in the environmental humanities. So what do I know about this? Um, in this in this sense, my interest in this paper is not a direct engagement with phenomenological method or with scholarly conversations about phenomenology. Rather, it starts by considering how phenomenology is taken up as a discursive object by a particular team working on the neuroimaging of breathlessness, particularly uh, Kyle Pattinson's um, Breathe Oxford group based at the Nuffield Trust in Oxford. Bear wonders how phenomenology begins perhaps to extend its reach into this work merely be, beyond a merely illustrative value. And I'll, I'll go into what I mean by this illustrative value. Um, how it produces tensions and how these tensions might highlight ongoing problems associated with trying to render visible the phenomenological experience of breathlessness through fMRI. That's what the neuroimaging that they're using. Finally, it'll take a concept that is made to do a lot of work in their research, namely symptom discordance, and ask what might happen if we reorient our terminology on symptom discordance, drawing on Sarah Ahmed's revisiting of Merleau-Ponty's account of orientation. What makes Breathe Oxford particularly fascinating is that they are using phenomenology. So they're quoting Carol in their papers. They're trying to start from this perspective of a phenomenology, but actually it's a kind of adornment. And I, I, I want to argue that actually when it seems like this is an adornment, it isn't, that it's, it's intruding into other aspects of the paper. So, but what makes us maybe interesting for, for phenomenologists is that they aren't ultimately aware of Varela or neurophenomenology at all. So they're not even really kind of doing a scholarly survey of phenomenological literature. They're just kind of saying, Carol has this really interesting account of breathlessness. Let's steal it. And we're going to, you know, preface our papers with it um, and then go into the real paper. And I want to argue that actually there's a kind of intrusion of these ideas into the real paper that is productive and potentially is a starting point for trying to work out how to solve this problem that I set, set out at the beginning. So they, they're looking for first-person accounts of breathlessness against which to measure their own technical observations. So they begin a 2017 paper with a quote from Carol's illness. Quote, breathlessness is an all-consuming and life-changing experience that is subjective, intensely personal, and is associated with profound fear. Now, it's tempting to dismiss the mention of Carol as mere adornment. And indeed, I think the group themselves would do just that. So they occupy that hemisphere that Varela, for instance, would call functionalist insofar as they seek to theorize their work in the obertedicta of introductions or discussions or papers primarily aimed at technical audiences working in neuroimaging. They respond to modular capacities of neurobiology and then try to put a kind of a theoretical um, framework that isn't really a theoretical framework drawing on phenomenology. Um, so, as Ferreira notes of functionalism, it uses a third-person or externalist approach to obtain data and to validate theories. And surprisingly, then, the Breathe Oxford group remains committed to a primarily Bayesian epistemology. In the sense, what, they, what use they are making 
of explicit phenomenology might be best thought of as a boundary concept, since they are using phenomenological ideas, but they're using them with some sort of interpretive flexibility, um, but not really much by way of consensus. And that's more or less because of the kind of audiences that they're writing for and the kind of work they're trying to do. Um, nevertheless, the invocation of phenomenology provides an entry here um, that might be productive for thinking about why non-phenomenologically oriented scientists are themselves trying to think phenomenologically. To understand this, I'd like to go a little bit deeper into Carroll's work and then go into why, why I think that this comes to be of interest. In The Phenomenology of Illness, Carroll clarifies why that there's a kind of a Janus-faced duality to breathlessness. Quote, it is so real and overwhelming to the person experiencing it, and yet so invisible to those around her. The discrepancy Carol identifies between external appearance and internal reality is in fact something that parallels a further discrepancy known as symptom discordance. And symptom discordance, finally, big reveal, um, is the discordance between the person's perception of breathlessness, their subjective experience of breathlessness, and objective measures of illness, i.e. heart and lung function tests, um, FEV, etc., etc., etc. Not only is the breathless person challenged by another's failure to recognize their experience, then their own interoceptive ability may not match what they feel to, uh, what they feel to what medicalized testing shows. Carroll usefully relates this mismatch to Merleau-Ponty's distinction be between the objective and the lived body. The affordances of the objective body come to define new limits on the bodily habits that determine the lived body's engagement with the world. To emphasize the reshaping of the world that faces the person with breathlessness, then, Carroll uses geographical metaphors or articulations that demonstrate both forms of discordance. But ultimately, Carol does not devote much attention to the extremes of symptom discordance that are indeed the, entrance, entrance, the primary interest of Breathe Oxford, either where a person has objectively severe disease um, but does not complain of breathlessness, or conversely, where a person does complain of breathlessness but has a much milder disease. So you can kind of think, if you, if you visualize a graph from my finger then um, there's a kind of a sensation line and a, a sort of an objective measure line. And what you would imagine with symptom concordance is that the line rises at a 45-degree angle because there's a good correlation between what your objective measures are and what your subjective measures are. But symptom discordance is then in those extremes where either you're hypersensitive and there aren't a lot of measures of objective breathlessness, or you don't feel breathless, but actually your SATs are around 80% or something, and so actually you are quite, quite breathless. So here is something perhaps where some more work might be done on how phenomenology might respond to fine-grained distinctions that imply a mismatch between objective measure and subjective experience. What makes this particularly tricky, though, but also perhaps interesting is that the group is not ultimately responding directly to the matter of most concern to neurophenomenology, which in its earliest incarnation, Varela, after David Chalmers, would call 
the hard problem, quote, the experience associated with cognitive and or mental events. Rather, they are interested in an autonomic function whose conscious regulation only temporarily mediates what is generally experienced unconsciously, i.e. without cognitive engagement. We may be aware that we are breathing, whether, poor, whether well or poorly, but our capacity to exert prolonged and sustained change or attention to this most basic of functions remains limited at best. So if the per first person account is so flawed, then why develop a phenomenological account at all or draw on one when doing the neuroimaging? So let's flip this round. If we understand the affordances of medical observation a bit better, we might understand why it is that they need the first person account from Carroll against which to measure their objective measures. For it is fairly simple to assess the objective facts about an, a body's O2 or CO2 levels, its FEV, and so on. But medical observation must still largely rely on how a person talks about conditions like pain and breathlessness in order to respond to experiences across the nervous system. Here it is perhaps worth, it, worth pointing out that it is precisely the case of symptom discordance that makes the first-person account so necessary even if this risks an argumentative circularity. Four, if there are indices where the personal account of breathlessness either marks the breathlessness as significant or insignificant, but the objective measures show the body to be contrastingly in respiratory satisfaction or distress, then any account of breathlessness must attend to the relation between these two approaches, since breathlessness is not only a measure of the body, but includes the subjective experience of that body. It is this relationship, ultimately, the neuroimaging is actually trying to track. Um, and, and it's on this basis that neuroimaging testing is, is done. So in order to track it, they need to be able to gauge both a first-person experience and measurable statistics against a clear brain scan. But the general capacity to undertake such a scan becomes tricky, particularly tricky in the case of breathlessness, because fMRI relies on image generated, images generated from tracking a bold response. So, and the bold response is the blood oxygen level dependency. The bold response identifies the tendency for oxygenated blood to rush to areas of increased cerebral activity thereby creating hotspots that then light up on your image scan. But in cases of severe breathlessness, actual or induced, the blood oxygen levels of the person will obviously be lower than usual and what's more irregularly distributed. So the bold response no longer acts as a viable phenomenon. And actually it's only very, fairly recently in 2008 that um, one of the researchers in this group has, has sort of developed a, a viable alternative to the bold response, um, primarily on the basis of tracking CO2 uh, levels um, uh, that, that, that we kind of starting to get to a neuroimaging of breathlessness that, that, that d would develop an accurate picture. Um, what's interesting is in his case, he developed it in, in order to track the effects of opioids. Since opioids lead to reduced 
respiratory rates, it was necessary to find a technique that would bypass the bold response. At the same time, however, they realized that this technique might be very useful in imaging people with chronic breathlessness. So I've kind of established some of the stakes. I want to take you through a very quick phenomenological genealogy of their work to suggest how they've come to a quasi-neurophenomenology, but not through working through any of the literature. This work begins with a distinction between rewarded and unrewarded breathlessness. And these are quotes, whereby healthy breathlessness contrasts the unpleasant sensations of people suffering from dyspnea. So in 2011, they start by suggesting, quote, the perception of dyspnea or breathlessness is not necessarily linearly related to the sensory input, but is modulated by cognitive and affective behavior factors. By 2016, the central and peripheral physiological mechanisms of breathlessness were divided into, quote, the perceived intensity of breathlessness, i.e. a sensory domain, unpleasantness, i.e. an affective domain, and subsequent cognitive and emotional responses. Sensory qualities or intensities are distinguished from affective qualities or pleasantness. In the 2017 paper mentioned earlier, they go on from Carroll to remark in COPD, repeated episodes of breathlessness might reinforce learned associations with context-relevant cues. So think of stairs, think of steep hills. These learned associations, this is all part of the quote, may then influence the brain's set of priors, highlighting Bayesian epistemology, Strong priors may dominate conscious perception accompanied by reduced gain in sensory processing regions. This seems at first glance simply to play out um, precisely those criticisms um, that you find in Merleau-Ponty um, of sensation in the biological sciences, whereby the atomized senses are foregrounded despite their coming after an already received umwelt. Certainly, the emphasis on priors does set the question of cognition front and center. But the actual foci of Breathe Oxford follow Carroll's work implicitly, at least, because they also rely on geographical associations. The stairs and steep hills that are given as already present, unpleasant intensities for the breathless subject. And this, I think, is because they are not ultimately interested in disproving the subjective through the objective, i.e. claiming that people who are more or less breathless than is evidenced by their O2 sats, etc., or even resting claims of the subjective on the objective, but rather in keeping a dialectic in play, whereby the subjective experience of breathlessness and its objective measurement come into tension in a small area of the midbrain called the periaqueductal gray matter. So instead of Merleau-Ponty's account of sensation, we might rather think about how this dynamic produces what he would, what he would call operative intentionality. Um, quote, the intentionality that pre-establishes or establishes the natural and pre-predictive unity of the world and of our life, particularly in its consequences for orientation. Let's recall that Merleau-Ponty writes of orientation that it is the system of possible actions rather than an agential intentionality. Quote, what accounts for the orientation of the spectacle is not my body, such as it in fact exists as a thing in objective space, but rather my body is a system of possible actions, a virtual body whose phenomenal place defined by its task and situation. Um, my body is wherever it has something to do. 
So the body as a system of possible actions is to be understood through its orientations. This perhaps offers a solution to the problem implicit in the use of concordance or discordance to evaluate relation between perceived experience and an objective need. Four, the concordance or discordance terminology seems to function on a truth-falsity relation that still relies on the facticity of the scientific body. In this, discordance happens when the perception is out of kilter with an actual body or a scientific body. Since the object of research is to assess this being out of kilter itself rather than the body itself, it may be better to avoid this presumption of fact by describing it as an orientation of actions that are indeed possible. Um, therefore, the object is less a matter of formal agreement between interoceptive awareness and objective reality than to assess the amplification or shrinking of capacity based on breathlessness and, by extension, engage, engage extensionality, that is, how the body experiences its capacity to move through space as space itself seems to expand or contract for the breathless subject. I guess that kind of nicely gels with some of the things that James was saying. Um, ultimately, this is what develops the normative structure that, with their emphasis on Bayesian epistemology, the neuroimages call priors. Sarah Ahmed then gives us a useful definition for the normative developed as a matter of habit. The, quote, the normative can be considered an effect of the repetition of bodily actions over time, which produces what we can call the bodily horizon, a space for action, which puts some objects and not others in reach. The reach of certain objects, in the case of people with breathlessness, is limited in a shockingly literal understanding of this passage. So on the last paragraph, I think. Um, but the capacity to misidentify the reach of this reach is also similarly difficult. Now, orienting oneself to this reach is not merely a matter of more precise interoceptive ability. This much is clear from the way in which interoception measures up against questions of perceived versus actual capacity. Um, Rather, it throws up the idea of a more precise intuition of the world based on the cognitive reception of actual perceived breathlessness as indexed against a more stable model of how the subject orients themselves towards their breathlessness as an associative quality of being in the world. So perhaps if we recognize that A, the test data tends to test perceived versus actual orientations in and toward the world, like stairs or the very substantial Kentish Hill that leads to this campus. <laughs> B, the notion of discordance begs the very questions that it's trying to ask. And C, its operations are best understood as tempering one's ability to orient oneself in the world. I'd like to suggest that we might think of symptom disorientation as a way of recognizing this tempering, cognizant of the fact that all, and of all the ambivalence that disorientation brings. So in conclusion, I have to say, uh, sorry that I won't be here for the, the fascinating sounding paper that's coming up on disorientation later, since I think it may well offer the rigorous account of disorientation that I so desperately need. But perhaps in anticipation of that, I offer Ahmed the last word on the potentially liberating quality disorientation might bring to the Breathe Oxford group. Moments of disorientation are vital. 
There are bodily experiences that throw the world up or throw the body from its ground. Disorientation as a bodily feeling can be unsettling and can shatter one's sense of confidence in the ground. Moments when you switch dimensions can be deeply disorienting. One moment does not follow another as a sequence of spatial givens that unfolds as moments of, of time. There are moments in which you lose one perspective, but the loss itself is not empty or waiting. It is an object thick with presence. Thank you.